Well, if you'll, uh, if you'll turn now to Jeremiah 33, and as I said, you may want to make an attempt at uh, putting a finger in Revelation and uh, Colossians. I've titled this message, Longing for Righteousness and Justice. And I think I'll turn to Jeremiah 33 too uh, while we're at it. Jeremiah 33, it'll be verses 14 through 16. And I'll ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word and attentiveness to his voice in the scriptures. Listen to the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we are always grateful to open your word, knowing that there is some, uh, something fresh in it for us. Lord, you know every need of ours, every, every life and every heart in this room, and even listening online, you know exactly to whom you want what words to be heard. And so we surrender ourselves to you today and pray you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good. And God, I pray that you would move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today to communicate what you desire to speak to your people. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I will tell you, I, uh, I've labored over this message, not because this passage is a particularly difficult passage, but in terms of, uh, of deciding um, how it is to connect the relevance of this to us in the here and now. now you know, this is one of these uh, Advent passages. You know, there's just a series of readings traditionally associated with different weeks in Advent, and that's usually my first go-to place, especially the first week in Advent. Um, so uh, I, I've, I've uh, labored over exactly how to deliver this, and here's what I'll say. Uh, none of this will be on the test, okay? So do you remember being in school and where um, you, you were, you'd, you'd go to a, uh, a class and if you're thinking this might be on the test, you're all nervous about the notes you need to take and all that kind of stuff. You're scrambling, what do I need to know and what do I need to retain from this and all that kind of stuff. And if the professor or the teacher said this is not going to be on the test, you could just relax and, uh, and, and, and listen and try to get... Uh, from it what you would. And that would be my encouragement this morning because this has the potential to be way too much. And I'm going to try really hard uh, to be sure that it's not. But I, w I, want, to, I want you to leave here today with a, a sense of what is here in the scriptures uh, from, a, from a really high, you know, 10,000 foot view rather than being so much concerned with most of the details here. Is that a fair enough offer? 
So uh, try, try to leave here with a sense of things um, rather than necessarily the detail. And uh, if you don't leave here with any sense at all, well, you're no worse off than you were when you came in. <laughs> but Jeremiah prophesied in the period leading up to um, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the subsequent captivity of, God, of God's people for 70 years. 70 years of captivity. And so the book is mostly about the coming judgment. Because to the, peop the, the, the people of God lived so persistently ungodly lives. I mean, so persistently ungodly lives for a long time. And if you were to survey the book of Jeremiah, you would see how evident this is. Um, and so just at a glance, you would see that they, they lived in open sin and idolatry, worshiping other gods, even worshiping nature uh, itself. God calls them to repentance through the prophecies of Jeremiah and does so over years and years and years of his prophetic ministry. Meanwhile, their corrupt priests and prophets are telling them nothing to worry about here. Don't listen to Jeremiah. A judgment's not coming. Um, they, that's what they wanted to hear. So it's no, it's no different now than it was then. That people have certain things they want to hear preachers preach. And so that's what preachers preach to them. Tickling their ears, as 2 Timothy said. And it was true then um, as, it, as it is now. And so they said, for example, peace, peace, where there is no peace, it says in Jeremiah 6.14. Don't, don't worry about this message of judgment and calamity. Not going to happen. And consequently, the people refuse to repent. That's uh, Jeremiah, the 52 chapters of it, mostly goes in cycles of those kinds of things. Idolatry and open sin, they're called to repentance uh, by Jeremiah. The prophets are telling them, don't worry about that. And so they refuse to repent. So from top to bottom of their society and at their very core, they were unrighteous and unjust people. And they were going to be chastised severely for that, exiled for 70 years. But in the middle of, of all that proclamation of judgment, there is this brief word of hope that's offered. In fact, really, chapters 30 through 33 of 52 chapters are, are somewhat hopeful there of a promised restoration. It is a reminder that, that for the people of God, today is never the end of the story. Or, 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 or I should say perhaps that, uh, that death is not the end of, uh, of the story for the believer who will live eternally with God. That destruction is not the end of the story. That whatever the calamity is that comes... Uh, God will always preserve for himself a remnant of his people and he will keep for himself his people all through eternity. That's so, so the bad news is never the end of the story. Even this bad news, it would be 70 years long of bad news where for a season of time there would be no mirth even among them. There would be no uh, laughter and celebration and rejoicing even among them. They would be so 
despondent, Jeremiah says. But there's this little message of hope. And it's like, see, this is before the judgment has even come to people who don't believe it's coming. He's offering them a message of hope on the other side of the judgment that they don't even think is coming. This is one of those that will be written down and sometime later they'll realize, oh, what was that thing Jeremiah said about better times are coming, something, 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 what was that? Because they're not even hearing right now. This would be a bit like, you, you know, as you're getting ready to go have a, a, some sort of major surgery, maybe a, a knee replacement or something like that where, where the doctor tells you, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be somewhat of a difficult recovery and it'll be painful and the physical therapy even will, which will be required as part of your recovery. Some of that will be painful, slow and painful. But in, but in the end, you're going to be so much better off. You're going to feel so much better in the end. So it's like for, forecasting pain is coming, but relief far better than the pain is coming after that. That's a bit of this short message of hope in Jeremiah saying, pain is coming. A lifetime of pain for the people of God who will be carried away to a foreign land. But hope is coming on the other side of that. And we see in what we just read here, um, again, it's really not a particularly difficult or confusing passage as such. In verses four, uh, 14 through 16, he says, behold, the days are coming when, number one, I, the, the promise uh, that I have made, I will fulfill to the house of Israel. I'll fulfill the promise that I've made. That promise has to do with what he says in verse 15. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. Uh, this is a reference to the Messiah, and it's not the only place where we read about the branch of David or even a branch from the stump of Jesse, as it's referred to in Isaiah 11. But there, there's a promise specifically being remembered here that God made to David that he would have a descendant to sit on his throne forever. From 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that's the promise that, that, that's, that's held out and held on to for generations and generations and generations. And it's one of the reasons when uh, the, the gospel of Matthew in particular opens up telling about the genealogy of Jesus. That he goes to the effort of laying out how Jesus is in the line of David because of that very promise that the, the Messiah would come forth from David. Just a, a branch. I love the picture given in Isaiah 11, that, that just the, the, the branch that springs forth from the stump. Even, even when everything's just been cut down and laid bare, there's still enough life in the root that just a sprig comes forth, and God will use that to change everything. And as you've got this, this, uh, this tree, if you will, that's, that's almost rotten to the core, the whole trunk has gone bad of Israel. I mean, they are just thoroughly evil 
and have been for a long time, just sinful through and through. And, and, and the promise is that uh, in the appointed time, that God will bring forth a righteous branch, a, just a branch, and from that, uh, change the whole course of history, that being the Messiah himself that we know is fulfilled in Jesus. And then the, the other thing uh, I would point out here is that it says that that righteous branch for David will execute righteousness and judge justice. Here's where I drew the title of the message from, Longing for Righteousness and Justice. Advent invites us into a season of waiting and longing as the people of Israel would be waiting, not so much immediately when they received this word, but after they're carried away into captivity, they would be longing and waiting for the day that hope would be manifest in their circumstances. And Advent invites us into that. In other words, a longing... For all it is that, that Jesus, the Messiah, has delivered and will deliver. And here it says, specifically, he shall execute justice and righteousness. This, this by itself is actually a, a very provocative thought. Because it's spoken to people who themselves are the source of unrighteousness and injustice. But unrighteousness and injustice are the sources of so much um, pain, sadness, hopelessness. I mean, so much of what makes life um, almost unbearable for people in uh, perhaps more in other parts of the world is living all the time under oppression, injustice, unrighteousness where there seems there's nobody who does good and that the most hopeful promising thing or one of the most hopeful and promising things he can say is that the Messiah will execute righteousness and justice there's hope to be found in that and then in the conclusion it says this is the name by which that place will be called the Lord is our righteousness, or the Lord our righteousness, it says in the King James and New King James. That's just a survey of what's, what's there in the text. There's a, there's a promise that in the future, in spite of the judgment, the harsh judgment coming to the people of Israel, there's still hope, and the day will come when God will bring forth a righteous branch in the person of the Messiah, and he will execute righteousness. And justice. And again, we know those to be messianic prophecies that find their fulfillment in Jesus. And when I said I labored over this message, part of it has to do with that much is familiar to us. So we can read a messianic prophecy and go, oh, yeah, 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 he's talking about Jesus. Okay, let's go to lunch. Well, not so fast. Because some may wonder. If this was fulfilled in Jesus, in what sense has he executed righteousness and justice? Or asked another way, if Jesus, the Messiah, has come, 
the branch that he's talking about here, if he has come and he has executed righteousness and justice, why is there still so much unrighteousness and injustice in the world? See, there's some people here who, ha- who just haven't, who haven't studied and read the Bible enough. They just ask the obvious question still. Somebody's asking that question. Hmm. If he's executed righteousness and justice, why is there so much unrighteousness and injustice in the world? And in what sense are we to understand that? That Jesus is the fulfillment of this while there's still so much evil in the world. Well, and this is the part, again, I want to I make an attempt at explaining something that could be uh, too much for our brains to digest in one sitting, but to give a survey of, of uh, what can help us read messianic prophecies in their fulfillment and frankly help us read a whole lot of the New Testament through the right lenses. And that is to have some sense that when we, uh, when we read about the Messiah coming, about establishing his kingdom, as we read in the New Testament about the kingdom of God, that there is a sense in which uh, the kingdom of God has already been established and a sense at which it's not yet fully established. Already and not yet. Okay? And so uh, I want to pull up a couple of slides here that that depict this. And um, so I don't know how well you can uh, see that from where you're seated with the lights the way they are. But, but the people in Jeremiah's day, for example, would probably have some sense that we're living in this present age and then there's going to be this event, namely the coming of the Messiah, the outpouring of the Spirit that they read about in Joel chapter 2 um, and uh, the, the advent of his kingdom and the, and the general resurrection of the dead, that those things, the, the, that big event will happen and then will enter into the age to come. Okay, so that would be the mindset. It would be a reasonable expectation. Hey, things are bad here in this present age. The Messiah is going to come. The stuff is going to happen. And then we're going to enter into the age to come. What we actually read about in the New Testament is that you have the present age and the age to come actually sort of overlap. And um, if you'll go to that next slide, this is... This is a, a, a bit confusing to orient yourself to, but it is like those two timelines where one followed the other have been sort of slided to, uh, slid to overlap each other where what actually happened, rather than it being a single event where all of that transpired and ushered in the age to come, we had uh, the first coming of Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and his resurrection. And what is still not yet happened is his second coming um, and the general resurrection of all the dead, the living, the living and the dead will be judged by Jesus at that time. So we have a sense in which right now as believers, you and I are, in, are, are living in this age and the age to come all at the same time. Now, that's, that's enough to say, okay, all right, that's enough for me. Let's go home, right? That's, 
That's just too, that's, that's not going to be on the test though, so you don't have to worry about it, right? But if you read the New Testament, you'll see even in, um, in the day of Pentecost when Peter is preaching, he talks about what is happening in, a, in our very midst before our very eyes is a fulfillment of what Joel prophesied about that would happen in the last days. That is to say, at the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the last days were inaugurated. And there's a sense in which we're living in the last days and have been for the whole age uh, of the New Testament church. We're living in an already and not yet period of time. So when we read the New Testament, we'll find in places over and over that there is a sense in which his kingdom has come and yet his kingdom has not yet fully come. A sense in which we have been saved already and another sense in which we have not yet been fully saved. We are even being saved and will be saved. It uses that, that sort of language. There is language in the New Testament that says we have been raised with Jesus already. I'll show you one this morning. But another sense in which our resurrection is yet awaited in our future. Already and not yet. Okay. Now, again, my, my point there is simply to, uh, to, to tell you that this is here. This is partly for, for you to have some sense of uh, what lenses we might even go back and read the scriptures with, with some uh, appreciation for what's even there. So we're, we read that, that, that we now and the church um, of all, down through all the centuries is living in the already and not yet. So there's a theologian named Oscar Coleman who compared uh, this position of disciples of Jesus with that of the person living between D-Day in World War II and V-Day. D-Day, of course, when um, the, the big campaign, they stormed the beaches of Normandy, Normandy right, and, uh, and sort of pushed back against the German uh, occupation there. And then V-Day was, that, so that was June of 1944. V-Day was the spring of 1945 when victory was actually declared. Now, what transpired at D-Day rendered certain victory would, would be in the hands of the Allies. Um, but victory, they, they still had to fight to actually secure it months later. Okay, victory was, was already won but not yet one. Okay, that's the analogy there, that, 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 it's, that it's certain, and, and for you and I, we're, we're part of a kingdom where victory has been won. That death has been defeated. And yet we still feel it fighting back against us all the time. We still have to fight a real spiritual battle, and one that's even manifest in the flesh. Real stuff. But it's like living between D-Day and V-Day. And so, from all of that, um, here's what I want to, uh, here's how I want to sort of apply uh, that concept to what we read here in Jeremiah 33. And really just two overarching points to try to take home. If you were going to write anything down, these might be the two things.
Number one, that Jesus will establish an eternal kingdom where unrighteousness and injustice are removed fully and finally. I'm doing this actually in reverse order. I said we're living in the already and not yet. I'm going to take it in the order of not yet, but then already, okay? So he will, the day, the day is yet to come, he will establish an eternal kingdom where unrighteousness and injustice are removed fully and finally. And this is what we wait for, we ought to wait for with some real longing and groaning. A day when there aren't any more aches and pains, where there aren't any more uh, deceitful rulers in any part of the world, where there's, uh, there's not sickness and disease and death. There aren't broken relationships and all the things that we would bring as cares to pray about. We long for that day where uh, all of that will be removed finally and fully. He will judge the world in righteousness. Okay? He will judge the world in righteousness. I'll read two scriptures for you um, that sort of underscore that point. From Matthew 16, verses 20, uh, 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus said that. So if you don't have a category in your thinking about God or about Jesus, if you don't have a category for judgment, you need to make room. Because Jesus said that that is coming and he will be the one to administer that judgment. It says in uh, Acts 17.31 that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's preaching to a pagan audience there at Mars Hill and says, God has, a, he's, he's been patient, but he's appointed a day when he will judge the living and the dead. He'll judge the world in righteousness. And he's given us assurance of this by raising this man from the dead. So one, there's one sense in which he'll establish this, uh, this earthly, this uh, eternal kingdom in that he, justice will be executed at a day of judgment of all the world. That's, that's one sense in which this will certainly, fully, and finally be fulfilled. He will execute justice and righteousness in judging the world in righteous, righteousness. But the second thing is, he will establish uh, a new heaven and a new earth as an eternally righteous kingdom. Okay, and this is where I wanted to refer to some verses from uh, Revelation chapter 21. And again, you don't, you don't have to follow along necessarily, and you don't have to remember all of this. It's just to it's give us a sense of, this is what the Bible lays out for us. That we, we, our hope ought not to be in that trip we've planned to Disney World. Our, our hope ought to be set in the new heaven and the new earth that, that God has in store for us. It will be so far greater than anything you're waiting for. Anything you're putting on your Christmas list. Anything you're imagining or saving up for five years from now. What he has in store is far better from that. And we ought to be longing for it. 
And he describes that in Revelation 21. I'm going to read like verses 3 and 4 and then 8 and 25 to 27. It just gives you a taste of what he says. But I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's good enough right there by itself. That's, that's good enough. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Hence we get a sense of the Lord is our righteousness. His righteousness will be in our very midst. It'll be all the righteousness we could possibly imagine. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And verse 8 tells us uh, one reason how that would be, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all liars, their portion will, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. For why in the world is that put in the middle of this glorious good news about the kingdom? The eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. Why in the world would that be inserted there? Because it is part of the gospel, by the way. It is part of the good news that he doesn't let evil go unpunished. But there's more to it than that. And we'll see uh, here in just a, a second. If you're, look, if you're trying to follow along, God bless you. Uh, but um, look down at verses 25 to 27. Because he says its gates of this new city, its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's some of what's, what's pictured. It says in verse 8, um, the, the, all evildoers of every sort that he named there, their portion will be the lake of fire and sulfur, the second death. And this, this, this new dwelling place of ours will just be devoid of evil. It will all be put away. You see, part of the point of this final judgment is not just God paying back everybody and, and you know, sort of pouring out his wrath and, um, and tormenting people for the bad things they've done. It is putting away evil once for all so that his people might dwell totally in a place of righteousness, unhindered by, undisturbed by evil and unrighteousness and injustice. It's just because he's going to put it away so that it says down in the, in the final verses that we just read, uh, they'll bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. See, it'll, it'll be a dwelling place where, where people from every tongue and tribe and nation will enter in, right? But not, but not the uh, uncleanness and sin and detestable and false things of all the nations. They'll be put away, and then they'll not be allowed back in. He is making a dwelling place that will be devoid of unrighteousness and injustice and evil of every sort. 
Now that is good news to me. I mean, that is good news to me. I'm ready to go. And I had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, but, you know, that, that just sounds like, that sounds like a good and desirable dwelling place. So we think about all the kinds of injustice, and there are more, I mean, more than we could name. All the kinds of injustice, all the kinds of unrighteousness, all of that will be put away. That is what is, that is what is not yet been fulfilled completely, but, but will be, and we ought to long for it, because he'll establish a kingdom where unrighteousness and injustice are removed fully and finally. The second point for you to try to take home is that Jesus already reigns in heaven, and the church should bring righteousness and justice to earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so we've got the not yet and the already. He will, in the future, establish an eternal kingdom where unrighteousness and injustice are put away entirely. Judgment is rendered, and then, and then righteousness reigns. He will dwell with men. His righteousness will be the righteousness of that dwelling place. But until then, Jesus already reigns. He is reigning right now. He is Lord right now over heaven and earth and everything under the earth. He reigns. And the church, as his body, should strive to bring righteousness and justice to bear on the earth as it is in heaven. His present reign in, in heaven governs how you and I live on earth because we are his body. Okay, so, so whatever else I say here from Colossians, this is the point I really want you to see. Is that, that what he reveals, and you go back and you read a whole lot of Paul through these lenses of, of essentially last things that are already fulfilled and yet not, uh, not yet finally fulfilled um, you'll see, uh, see it in a way perhaps you haven't seen it before. But his present reign on, on, in heaven governs how we live on earth as his body. That we currently participate with him in his reign over all things visible and invisible. So in the book of Colossians... You'll get a sense of that through the whole, it's a short book, it's only four chapters long. But I'll jump around here a little bit. Uh, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, talking about this fact, that, that, that there's, Jesus has already won a victory and secured a place of rulership. Chapter 2, verse 15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. He's, he's done that. God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, he says about us as believers, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Already done that. Transfer already went through. Not waiting on any government official. 
to stamp it. He's already done it. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12. It says, You, as a believer, have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him up from the dead. You You have been buried, and you've been raised again with him. Already. Already. And so... Here's what, here's what chapters 3 and 4 get at. Because that's true. Because he has won the victory and you and I as believers in him have, have died and been raised again with him. Chapter 3 begins with, in verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Some of you remember these verses. You've read them and studied them in a very practical way before. But here's what he's... Don't miss this, uh, this profound point that he's saying. Jesus has won a victory. He reigns now and he, he's raised you up with him. If you've been raised with him, seek things that are above where he is. And not the things of earth. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God, he says. So then he goes on, beginning in verse 5 or so. So put to death what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And then a few verses later, uh, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk out of your mouth. All of those things that are of the earth, put them away because you're not of the earth. You've been raised with Christ. He reigns now, and the righteousness that abides in heaven is to be lived out in the lives of his people, his body on the earth. That's the message. So put away the things that are earthly in you and put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. How we ought to live in light of the fact that we've been raised with Christ who reigns now. And it gets very, very practical down at the end of uh, uh, chapter 3 and into 4. Even where he talks about how we live in the home. There's There's a short word to wives, husbands, children, bond servants. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, uh, he said, or chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And I, I just want to tie that back into this, uh, this prophecy that the, that the Messiah, the righteous branch, would would, would execute righteousness and justice. And because in a, there is a sense in which he has already done that, and because there's a sense in which he reigns already, and we reign with him, we are to treat uh, people around us justly and fairly as well. Because he is just, we are to be just. That's the connection there he makes with masters specifically. You see, in other words, it gets very, very practical. But it's not just, hey, I follow Jesus, and Jesus has a list of rules I need to obey. 
That's, that misses the point. Uh, Jesus has uh, secured a victory over death and sin, and he reigns over every principality and power and might and dominion. All of the uh, heaven and earth has been put under his feet. And so those who belong to him are called to live as he lives. If we say we know him, we ought also to walk as he walked. John tells us in 1 John. See, because he has, he has already secured a victory and reigns in a spiritual kingdom, that has implications for how we live in very practical ways. And so we ought to look around. I'll, I'll sort of land the plane here. It's maybe a crash landing, but uh, I'll land it. See, we, we ought to look around as the people of God who care about the things God cares about, who take to heart uh, just some fraction of what even I've just said. We ought to look around at all the unrighteousness and injustice in the world and long... Long for the day it'll be put to an end. And not just the injustice that happens to us. Because frankly, we don't experience a whole lot of it by comparison. I mean, you, you look at Christians in other places who all the time are persecuted, mistreated, treated deceitfully. Like who don't have legal recourse the way everybody else has legal recourse. I was reading this week from a, uh, an early, uh, probably third century uh, writing of the, of the early church. And there's a, a bishop making an appeal to government uh, leaders, Roman leaders. Just that they would have a hearing when an accusation is brought against them. That they would just get a hearing. See, they, it wasn't that they didn't get a fair hearing. In some cases, they didn't get one at all. That's injustice. I mean, like I said, most, most of us, by comparison, don't experience much of it. So we're not only concerned about the injustice that we experience, but the injustice all around us. We ought to, we ought to notice it. We ought to, it ought to grieve our hearts. We ought to groan about it and long for the day that God will finally put it to an end. You know, evil of all sorts around us, bullying and intimidation, discrimination on the basis of sex, race, social class, and so on. To, 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 to great extent, again, something that frankly, as much as of, of it as there is even in our culture, it doesn't compare in our culture to what it is other places in the world. Some of you have maybe heard about the Dalit people in India, uh, the lowest of the low caste system, who are untouchables, considered untouchables. They're really treated like animals. They're regarded that way. I mean, they are, they are just despised people. And there are somewhere on the order of 200 to 250 million of them 200 to 250 people, million people today and every day live with such low regard by everybody around them 
that their life is no better off than the animals. In fact, worse off in some cases because some of the animals are sacred. Hundreds of millions of people who live that way. It is, it is injustice that we can't fathom. And see, we ought, to, we ought to notice it and we ought to grieve about it and groan about it and long for the day that God will put it away fully and finally. And until then, until then, we ought to live for uh, righteousness as much as we can. Live it and live for it. And we ought to live for justice as much as we can and strive to see them brought to bear on the earth as it is in heaven to the extent that we have any control over whatever our sphere of influence is. Hence why I love the fact that there is a connection even in the instructions Paul has to people in the household. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, bondservants, masters. You live differently than the people across the street because you belong to Jesus. Whatever sphere of influence he's got, uh, he's given us, we ought to do our level best to strive to bring righteousness and justice to bear in light of what he has already done, in light of the reign that he already has, longing for the day to come and the reign that he will establish fully and finally where there will be eternal peace and rest and unity and worship, unhindered, unobstructed, that will be a glorious day that we long for and wait for. And that's the sort of waiting and longing that Advent invites us into, not only as we begin a season leading up to Christmas, but even for many uh, in other more liturgical churches as they begin the liturgical year. And I, there's, there's not much a better way to begin a year than to remind yourself of what Christ has already done and what's not yet fully been done and how that calls us uh, to a noble life as his body on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would make good um, of all that has been said here today, Lord, and all you would want to say. Would you store in memory for people what needs to be stored? Delete what needs to be deleted. But Lord, would you use it for our good that we might, we might have our eyes open and enlightened to what it is you have already done, what it is you will are still yet to do in a final sense and how that changes the way we are to live in between. Would you reorder our cares and concerns and desires, the things that we love and devote ourselves to, the, 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 the sin that we're willing to tolerate in ourselves, the injustice that we're willing to overlook because it's not happening to us. 
Would you reorder our thinking and our living because of what you have done and what you will do in the age to come? In Jesus' name, amen.